welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series nine and episode four. We're going to deal with two parables, the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. We're studying in Luke chapter 15 and our text is Luke 15 verses 1 to 10. We seem to have spent a lot of time in Luke's gospel uh, in this uh, part of the whole life of Jesus. Uh, And this is because Luke has focused a lot of attention on this fascinating period where Jesus is moving away from Galilee. He's left Galilee after three years of successful ministry and he's heading south for Jerusalem. Uh, And Luke gathers a lot of material to describe this extensive journey that involved lots of stopping and starting in different places. It probably took several months. Uh, John adds some supplementary material, which we saw in series eight that described a couple of private visits to Jerusalem. But the real focus in Luke's gospel is that Jesus is going to make a public visit, a very public visit to Jerusalem, which will be his final visit. He's never going to go back to Galilee. He's heading to Jerusalem and he's heading to a major confrontation with the religious authorities. I've emphasized these points uh, frequently in recent episodes because every time we come back to the text, it's always important just to reorientate ourselves towards the context. You may have heard all the episodes of series eight and you may be very familiar with me emphasizing these points or you may be just coming to this particular episode, hence the repetition just to make sure we all understand the context and the significance. As series nine starts, uh, the journey is getting closer to Jerusalem, the time is getting shorter, and the sense of anticipation is getting greater. The sense of conflict is getting more intense. The conflict between Jesus on the one hand and his disciples and his message of the kingdom and his identity as the Messiah, and on the other hand, the religious establishment in Jerusalem, which is feeling more and more threatened as Jesus's popularity seems to be growing in the central and southern districts of the country, particularly in Judea, the area immediately surrounding Jerusalem in the south. Because large crowds are following him, people who've never had the opportunity to see him when he was in Galilee because he was living too far away, they never made the journey, and now he's coming a little bit closer to them, they're making a big effort to come out, and large crowds and large numbers are inferred or uh, supposed by the Uh, comments that Luke makes from time to time to suggest uh, what's actually going on in the situation. For example, in Luke 12 and verse 1, a crowd of many thousands had gathered and people were trampling one another. Just an example from uh, a little further back in our text. Now, as well as this sense of conflict, we've also got uh, quite a lot of teaching about discipleship. The radical nature of Christian discipleship is laid bare in these sections. Uh, We've had, for example, in Luke 12, a number of different teachings from Jesus about different aspects of discipleship, speaking up, identifying yourself as a Christian, not becoming materialists, um, being faithful and watchful, uh, being willing to face division even in your family as a result of your faith. All these themes come out uh, in terms of discipleship. And in the last episode, Jesus very explicitly talks about the cost of being a disciple and invites people to take up their cross. In other words, take up the reality of suffering and rejection that you may face because of your faith. So these are some of the themes that have emerged in this particular period 
of Jesus's life and ministry. Jesus is emphasizing that it's the outsiders very often who are going to become the insiders. The last are going to be the first and the first invited or offered salvation are going to go to the back of the queue because they miss their opportunity. He's constantly saying in this period that it's very important to take up the opportunity that is given by Jesus at this particular time for the Jewish community, for the, for the nation. It's a critical moment. But Jesus emphasizes that outsiders are being given the opportunity and are often much more willing to respond. Some examples uh, from the text would be the fact that he says on one occasion in a recent episode, people from the north, south and east and west are going to gather in the kingdom of God. And those who should be there from the Jewish nation won't be there. That's a reference to all the Gentile nations coming to salvation. Then in the parable of the great banquet in uh, Luke 14, we have the fact that the poor and the marginalized are invited to the banquet when the first invitees refuse their invitation and they go off and do their own things. So the poor and the marginalized are going to come in. The Gentiles are going to come in. And then in this particular passage, we find that the socially marginalized, the tax collectors and sinners, are a gathering around Jesus. We see that at the very beginning of this passage. So this gives you just a little bit of context to some of the themes, some of the emphasis, some of the feeling of what's actually going on at this particular stage of Jesus's ministry. Let's just read um, the opening two verses together. We're in Luke 15, and this is the first two verses. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, this is a familiar theme. We've seen it before in other contexts. We've seen the religious leaders in opposition to Jesus and time and again recently in the text we've seen very strong opposition from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We even saw in a recent episode an occasion when a Pharisee invited Jesus to his home and after some tense discussion in his home with, with other Pharisees and other teachers of the law who Jesus challenged they got outside his house and as soon as they got outside uh, the man's house Pharisees and teachers of the law started criticizing Jesus publicly to the whole crowd. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are in opposition to Jesus. Bear in mind, as we've often said, they've already made their decision at the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, that Jesus is a false messiah coming under false pretenses, uh, probably operating under the power of demonic forces and needs to be eliminated from the nation of Israel. So they've already made their decision, their opposition is clear. But the other factor of interest here is that tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. We just need a quick reminder of what we mean by this expression, tax collectors and sinners, which is often used in the Gospels. Now, tax collectors um, appear at different times. In fact, even G one of Jesus's followers and disciples, one of the 12, Matthew or Levi, is uh, a tax collector by profession, although he's given up that work in order to follow Jesus. Tax collectors 
worked for the Roman authorities or for their associates, depending on which part of the country they were in. And they were responsible for collecting tax. Very often it was customs tax for goods traveling along the road, and they'd often be positioned to take collections there. They had some minimal amounts that they had to give over to the authorities. And if they got any more money from taxation than what they were owed, what they owed to the authorities, they could keep it for themselves. So they were often uh, uh, very rich, very unpopular, very unscrupulous. Sinners is usually a statement that uh, speaks of uh, women who are involved in prostitution. It can have a reference to men, particularly who are involved in uh, black marketeering and financial manipulation, uh, things like that. Uh, but the expression tax collectors and sinners carries, carries uh, with it the sense of those who are irreligious. They may be poor, they may be rich, but they are not honoured in society. They are unpopular. The prostitutes were not popular. The black marketeers were not popular. The tax collectors were very unpopular. These are people on the outside. They're not seen in synagogues very much. They're considered to have broken the law of Moses and to be irreligious and disrespectful of God and disrespectful of the religious leaders. That's the context of what we are talking about. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law had a particularly low opinion of tax collectors and sinners. So they were shocked, they were horrified, they were scandalized at the thought that Jesus should welcome sinners and even eat with them, socialize with them, get to know them, become their friends. They found that really abhorrent, something they really couldn't understand because it seemed to go quite against the traditions of their religion. This reminds us actually that something very similar happened when one of Jesus' disciples was called Matthew, as I mentioned a few moments ago. I'm just going to read the very few verses in Matthew's Gospel that describe his calling. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. We've studied this passage in an earlier episode, but it's very interesting that exactly the same theme comes up. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a very similar context to the situation we're describing. They were really offended to think that Matthew, through a party, invited his friends, other tax collectors, other sinners, black marketeers, maybe prostitutes, maybe other shady characters in the community. They had a big meal and Jesus actually went to the meal with them and started speaking to them. The Pharisees and teachers of the law outside were just horrified that what on earth is going on here? This man has got all his priorities wrong. Exactly the same thing happens here at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And in verse 3 it says, Then Jesus told them 
this parable, who's the them? The them is primarily the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The self-righteous religious leaders are being challenged by two parables that Jesus tells. Parables are stories with symbolic meanings, usually with one main theme. They're not allegories where every detail has a representation in real life. They clarify the truth for genuine believers and they hide the truth from the skeptical and unbelieving in a strange way because they're already so resistant to the ideas of Jesus. So two very well-known parables are part of our text, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. We also have following on from there a related parable, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. That's going to be the subject of our next episode. These are well-known stories and this is a very popular chapter uh, in the Gospels and rightly so because it contains some wonderfully important material. But perhaps it's worth noting here with the parable of the lost sheep even before I read it that we encounter this in another context in Matthew chapter 18 which appears in series 7 and episode 8. And in Matthew 18, the story is told in the context of believers who wander off and need shepherds to bring them back to the church. Here, the focus is a little bit different. This is about unbelievers, people who are lost and need to find Christ for the first time. That's the implication given by the context. But here's another interesting example of a material that appears in the Gospels in different contexts. And as I've said on a number of earlier occasions, when we have a material reappearing and being reused by Jesus in different contexts, that's simply because that is exactly what happened in his ministry and happens in the life of anyone who is a teacher, as all teachers will quickly know. Things get repeated in different contexts to make the points you need to make to the people you need to make them to. Verses three to seven. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. We've come across the image of the shepherd and his sheep a number of times in the Gospels. Jesus is the good shepherd, John chapter 10. We've seen this parable in Matthew chapter 18, for example. So I need to just remind you of some of the things that I've stated in other contexts, just in case you haven't remembered them or haven't been listening to other episodes. Shepherding in Israel needs to be understood. The country was open very few enclosed fields. Shepherds looked after their sheep by following them around in the daytime 
and bringing them together in sheep folds with stone walls at night time to protect them from wild animals and other danger. Shepherds would work in teams and it was more of a way of life than a job. They were tended to be social outsiders, um, but they had an important job. They needed to fend off wild animals, fend off thieves, and be sure that they could account for all their sheep. It required constant attention, constant vigilance. And as you counted your sheep coming in to the sheepfold in the evening, if you noticed there was one missing, you do so by counting, almost certainly, and then you have a question, shall I go and try and find the sheep? And of course, uh, with other shepherds available to look after the sheepfold, you could go and devote your time to finding the lost sheep. The overwhelming concern of the shepherd in this story is to find the lost sheep and a willingness to sacrifice himself in that process. It takes time, energy, travel. You can get very weary. It's hard to find sheep in some terrains. And then at the end, we notice that the lost sheep is the one who needs to uh, repent. This is an unbeliever. That's the theme. And we also think of the fact that Jesus himself describes himself as the good shepherd in John 10 verse 11, which we've studied in an earlier episode. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So there's something of the heart of Jesus in this story. The human shepherd reflects the divine shepherd. And all of heaven is excited and delighted and thrilled when one sinner repents, when one sheep is brought back to the flock and into the sheepfold. The story is fairly straightforward. It's very powerful. And it challenges the attitudes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Their attitude was to be judgmental of those they considered irreligious and lost outside of the official religious system of Judaism. They looked down on them. They considered them immoral, second-class citizens, irreligious, not worthy of attention, perhaps even beyond redemption. But Jesus challenges that fundamentally by saying that if somebody's lost, like a lost sheep, this should uh, evoke in us a feeling of compassion for their situation, a feeling of desiring to use our resources and our time to go and find them and to go and help them. That was not the case with the Pharisees. They didn't lift a finger to go and help those who were outside of Judaism, not functioning as religious Jews. No, they criticised them. They judged them. They were legalists. They divided people into those who followed the rules and those who didn't. Whereas the shepherd here didn't divide people up in that way. He didn't divide his sheep up in that way. He was interested in every sheep and he wanted to go and find the one that was lost. The second parable makes a similar message, but using a different 
metaphor and a different life situation, but a very vivid and important one. Verses 8 to 10. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love this simple little story. Women usually managed the household and very often that included managing the finances. Money in those days was in the form of coins and we have 10 silver coins mentioned here. And there weren't banks in any official sense to put the money in. There were, of course, money lenders and people who offered to secure your finances for you by looking after them. But they had no official status and there was a great risk involved in that process. And often they were very corrupt. So most people kept their valuables and their money in particular in their house or even buried it secretly in the ground in an inconspicuous location as Jesus describes with the parable of the treasure in the field in Matthew chapter 13. That's an example of something similar. But in this case, the woman keeps her coins in a safe place in the house. She has 10 silver coins. They're actually 10 drachma coins. We've come across these before. They appear at various times in the text. And another example would be Matthew 20 verse 2, where they appear in a parable story. A drachma in those days was approximately one day's worth of a labourer's wage. One drachma. And most people were paid daily for their labour. So with her 10 silver coins would represent uh, about 10 days worth of work, or perhaps nearly two weeks worth of income. So when you lose one of those, you're losing the equivalent of the money you might earn in a single day. Perhaps you can calculate what that is in your economy and in your society and in your currency. And you imagine losing that amount of money. It's not like losing a small little coin out of your wallet or your purse. This is a substantial amount of money. And people lived very simply. Many people... Um, lived by day labouring and mostly that was day labouring by men who would bring their money home and very often it would be the wives who would look after the money. So in the psychology of the story we also have the risk of conflict with the woman's husband. So the anxiety over the loss of the coin is not just the monetary value for the family but it's also the relational risk because her husband could be angry that money he'd earned had been lost. And it brings to mind the intense emotions that we sometimes feel when we lose something valuable. Like people I've noticed in our country when they lose their smartphone, uh, they mislay it somewhere, 
That is a very big, dramatic moment. Intense emotions are brought about by that moment. And so the woman makes very intense efforts to find the coin. She's sure it's somewhere in the house. She remembers putting it away somewhere or storing it. And she's very, very relieved when an intense search, turning over all the furniture and all the clothing and all the things in the house, reveals that the coin is there, hidden away. And she's so happy. She wants her neighbours to know about it. She wants them to come around to rejoice with her together. And Jesus said that rejoicing is like the rejoicing of the angels and God himself when a sinner repents and turns to Christ. These are pretty vivid examples and they are, of course, from everyday life. Uh, looking after sheep and goats uh, was a very fundamental part of the economy of ancient Israel as an agricultural economy. The story of the coin in the home and the woman's search for it would be a story that many people in ancient Israel would understand as they'd always had an issue with being secure with their money. Where would they keep their valuable money and keep it safe from theft and loss? It was a tricky thing to do. No banks, no storage companies, storage depots and security guards available for the ordinary person in Israel in those days. You had to look after your valuables yourself and it was often difficult to do that. So as we come to the end of our episode, we've looked at two quite familiar parables, but they tell us something really uh, wonderful about God and about salvation and about Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Jesus' heart is that people should be found and should be saved. He wants his message to go everywhere. He wants people to respond to him. And his heart is for the outsiders. We mentioned earlier on that in the narrative, in the earlier passages, in the chapters just before this, we see Gentiles mentioned from all the nations of the earth. We see the poor and the needy and the destitute mentioned. And now we see the tax collectors and sinners mentioned. These are outsiders. And outsiders can become insiders in the kingdom of God. That's the amazing truth. No one is outside. No one should be judged as unable to receive the salvation of Christ. It's not that kind of salvation. It's open to every single person. Nothing can prevent us from coming to that salvation in terms of our social background or ethnic background. There's tremendous joy in heaven over the salvation of people when they turn to Christ and they become found by him. The woman's joy at finding the coin was tremendous. She just couldn't keep it to herself. She had to go out of the door, knock on the neighbor's doors and say, come Come round, have some celebration food and drink with me because I found this coin. I was so worried about it, but now I found it. The shepherd was so joyful to see one of those beloved sheep found, still alive, not being killed by a wild animal, not injured beyond uh, the ability to live, just lost, 
and needing to be found. This compares very starkly with the attitude of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, whose hearts are hard, whose attitudes are really hard. They have been corrupted by legalism and the belief that in order to please God, you have to obey many, many religious laws and the belief that they can even make those laws and the belief that they can then impose them on other people and then the belief that they can judge other people when they don't live up to their standards. Jesus has already in earlier episodes condemned these attitudes wholeheartedly. This is not true religion. This is not true Christian faith. This is not the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus offers a way for the most vulnerable, very simply, to say, we're lost, we need help, we've made mistakes, we've got it wrong, we're in need, please help us. And the wonderful thing about the God we worship, our Father in heaven, and about the Lord Jesus Christ, is that they will always hear the cry of the genuinely needy and humble person, and they'll come and bring salvation to that person, and they'll come and live within him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the sheer wonder of the parables of Luke 15. In our next episode, we'll see an even more dramatic example of that same love of God for the outsider, the marginalised, the person who'd completely failed in life. When we look at the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. And I look forward to sharing that with you in the next episode. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.